I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting the Pentateuch. In this lesson, we're taking a short break from the Pentateuch to consider ancient Near Eastern parallels to the Bible. This lesson pairs with Lesson 8, Ancient Near Eastern Backgrounds. How do we think about stories or ideas or behaviors that are mirrored outside of the Bible in Egyptian or Babylonian or Hittite sources? We've just finished our overview of Numbers, the fourth book in the Pentateuch. If you want to keep going with the Pentateuch, then feel free to skip this podcast and jump to the next lesson, which is the first lesson on Deuteronomy. If you've ever wondered what to do with multiple flood stories or similar law codes or biblical references to Leviathan, then this lesson's for you. In 2300 BC, Sargon the Great established the rule of his city, Akkad, over all Mesopotamia. This Akkadian empire became the caretaker of Sumerian culture, which had accumulated in the region for more than a thousand years. After 200 years of Akkadian rule, a devastating threat spilled over the Zargos Mountains from the plateaus of modern-day Iran. Gutian barbarians swept through the land of the two rivers. They brought no written language, no record of history. In what seems to be a historical pattern, the barbarian hordes overwhelmed Sumerian civilization. The resurgence of Sumerian domination began in Lagash. Susan Bauer writes, The warrior Gudea of Lagash rid his own city of the Gutians, took Lagash's reins as king, and then began to purify and rebuild the temples of the Sumerians, which had apparently been wrecked by the Akkadians or the Gutians. An inscription records Gudea's narration of how he came to know how to rebuild a Sumerian temple for the god Ningirsu. Gudea says, In the dream a man whose stature reached up to heaven and reached down to earth, who according to the tiara round his head was a god, at whose feet was a storm, to whose right and left a lion was at rest, commanded me to build his house. A second man, like a warrior, held in his hand a tablet of lapis lazuli and outlined the pattern of a temple. 600 years before Moses received the tabernacle pattern from God amidst the storm on Mount Sinai, Gudea, king of Lagash, received a temple pattern in a dream from his God at whose feet was a storm. This story was recorded and has made its way down to us. Did it also make its way down to Moses? I mean, what do we make of this? Coincidence? I mean, some parallels may be coincidence. Some parallels may only be apparent parallels, which upon closer inspection show up not actually to be that similar. But there are too many connection points between the Bible and ancient Near Eastern sources to write off every case as accidental. We need to thoughtfully assess potential connections. Let's start with potential ways to assess ancient Near Eastern parallels. Then we'll look at some examples. I'm heavily in debt to Dr. Jeffrey Niehaus, my Old Testament professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Dr. Niehaus became a believer in Jesus Christ the same month that he received his doctorate from Harvard University. He is a born-again believer whose critical thinking was developed in the secular university before being applied to the Bible. I've taken principles for assessing parallels from classes with Dr. Niehaus and from his book, Ancient Near Eastern Themes, in biblical theology, which, by the way, is a great place to start if you would like to further investigate the issue of parallels. 
First, let's acknowledge a very widespread presupposition that exists in secular academia. It's generally assumed that human religion has evolved from a primitive state to an advanced state. Dr. Niehau cites George Fraser's classic anthology, The Golden Bough, as an example. Fraser admitted that his 13-volume work was primarily a collection of data, but he added in his own interpretation of the data. Niehaus writes, Fraser detected a pattern in the evolution of human thought, from belief in magic through belief in religion to belief in science. He thought the pattern was universal. Though often skeptical or even hostile to the Bible, this presupposition that human religion has only moved from primitive to advanced can also have proponents who are socially conservative and generally positive towards the Bible. The Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson advocates a worldview that originates with primitive man discovering moral values that promote human society. The display of commendable moral attributes are recorded in the stories of heroes. The heroes of those myths are later elevated to the status of gods and goddesses. And the commendable attributes are finally brought together from many gods to one supreme display of goodness in God the Father and the true God-man hero, Jesus Christ. Jesus, then, is the pinnacle of human thought on moral values that began with no gods and ended up with Jesus. That's my paraphrase of Peterson. He says it much, much better than I have. The point I'm drawing from Peterson is that he does not believe religion to be based on historical events. He might call it truth, but he's talking about psychological truth. And in that, he's talking about his version of psychological truth, which assumes evolutionary development of religion. He assumes a growth from the primitive to the advanced. As a believer in the Bible, I automatically question this presupposition of religious evolution. I hold to a very different story. I hold to a story of devolution. Adam and Eve were created good with advanced knowledge of one supreme creator God. Humanity did not start with no knowledge of God and then move towards God. Humanity started with God and moved away from him. Paul describes the human cycle of devolution this way in Romans 1, to 23. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and forfeited animals and crawling creatures. The Bible recognizes this tension in people. While we yearn for what we can only find in God, we resist submission to God, turning away to shadows. This is Europe. This is modern America. We are moving from a past general acceptance in our cultures of one true creator God towards paganism, towards a belief in a world of spirits. And it's not evolution, it's devolution. The new atheists think that by eliminating the God of Islam, the God of Judaism, and especially the God of Christianity, they will usher humanity into a more evolved state, free of religion, free of spirit, free of heaven and hell, and free of an imposed moral standard. But looking at our recent human past, we ask, is that the result in communist Russia during the 20th century? You officially remove God, is he gone? Is that what's happening now in communist China? Is that the path modern Europeans and Americans are taking? When you remove God, does humanity embrace a purely materialistic vision of the world? No. 
Some might, but on the whole, we are still seeking the spiritual and the spirits. How do we interpret that? How do we understand that? We are either still caught in our primitive human state, not yet evolved enough to accept there is no God, or eternity cries out in our hearts, drawing us inevitably to the belief that there must be something more. And if God be removed, we will find something to put in his place. Even if we do not accept the story of the Bible, we still have some challenging sociological data to consider. For example, if you've never read Don Richardson's Eternity in Their Hearts, that's another intriguing place to start. Richardson notes culture after culture that recognizes a distant creator God, too holy to approach, existing in the far-off past. Did humankind really evolve religion through time? Is that the best interpretation of the data? Or is it possible that we began with knowledge of God and have cycled through the generations, sometimes coming closer to worship of one true God, sometimes turning away to develop our own vision of spiritual reality? So while recognizing that for non-Christian scholars, it is a possible hypothesis that the Bible took from some other culture and built upon what is borrowed, that is not our presupposition. It is a possibility that must be addressed, but there are other possibilities to consider. As with most serious endeavors in life, understanding parallels between the Bible and ancient Near Eastern culture is not so simple as to have a one-size-fits-all answer. We have to consider possible parallels on a case-by-case basis and consider different possible reasons for those parallels. Coming from my presupposition that the Bible is God's Word and does provide us with an accurate worldview, I suggest four possibilities to keep in mind when considering parallels between the biblical story and various ancient Near Eastern sources. One, there exists a common source event from which both the Bible and other sources draw. Two, God is intentionally using a known element of culture to communicate spiritual truth. Three, God is rebuking or correcting false elements of the ancient Near Eastern worldview. Four, spiritual forces of evil have worked to pervert God's truth. Now let's consider some examples for each of these four possibilities, starting with the first possibility that there exists a common source event. Possibly the most famous example of parallels was discovered in 1827 by a 27-year-old Englishman named George Smith who taught himself how to read cuneiform script and the Assyrian language. Browsing the British Museum in his free time, Smith was the first to read and understand portions of the now-famous Gilgamesh epic, which provides parallels both to the biblical creation story and the flood story. Let's consider the flood. The most complete standard version of the Gilgamesh epic comes from Assyria and is dated somewhere from 1300 to 1000 BC. That would be after Moses wrote down the story of Noah, according to our dating of Moses around 1500 BC. But the oldest tablets recording part of the Gilgamesh epic stretch back before Moses to 1700 BC and are thought to represent a story written around 2100 BC, taking us back to the empire of Ur in Abraham's era. So it seems to be a flood story that predates the writing of Genesis by about 600 years. This example becomes more interesting by the existence of other flood narratives from the same region of the world. There are five total. The biblical story and the Gilgamesh epic are two. There's an older Sumerian story that's been dated 
before 3000 BC called Eridu Genesis, as well as the later Akkadian Atrahasis epic from around 1600 BC, and the Ugaritic Ras Shamra version from around 1400 BC. All of these epics are from the region stretching from Israel up north to the source of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, curving east down to the Persian Gulf. So what we call Mesopotamia. Now, how do we assess these parallel flood stories? Is it a coincidence that every major culture in Mesopotamia seems to have its own flood story? Is it a myth that got copied? And once we get past the similarities in the stories, there are some striking differences. For example, in both the Gilgamesh epic and in the Noah story, the heroes make sacrifice after exiting the boat. In the Gilgamesh epic, the gods are compared, not very flatteringly, to flies buzzing over the sacrifice, eager to eat after having gone long without food. There's an interesting connection to Genesis 8.21, which states, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. In the biblical account, the Lord does smell the soothing aroma of the sacrifice, but unlike Gilgamesh, instead of indicating hunger, this implies God's reception of the sacrifice from Noah. Sacrifice is pleasing to the God of the Bible when it comes from obedience and a right heart. The Bible never depicts God as needing sustenance from sacrifice. The motive of the story is similarly connected. None of the other stories establish the motive for the flood as judgment on mankind for wicked behavior. In the Atrahasis epic, the god Enlil decides to destroy mankind because they're making so much noise, he can't sleep. So while we have a definite parallel in some aspects of the story, the biblical story also stands out as theologically unique. So how do we explain the parallels? Well, in the case of the flood, one very reasonable possibility is that there was a flood. There exists a common source event from which both the Bible and other sources draw. That may not be the only possible explanation, but it's a good explanation which takes into account the number of different stories. Paul Krivacek, who is not sympathetic towards the Bible, acknowledges in his work Babylon, Mesopotamia, and the Birth of Civilization that non-Christian scholars also suggest that a real flood event stands behind the various sources. Though they posit a regional catastrophe, such as a possible flooding of the Black Sea Basin or a reflooding of the Persian Gulf, rather than a worldwide flood, Still, it's an interesting acknowledgement that the stories are not simply fiction, but best explained by a real event. The conversation doesn't tend to end with suggesting a reason for the parallels. We then want to know which of the stories, if any, comes closest to an actual flood event. Scholars with a bias towards the evolution of religious thought might argue that the biblical story is shown to be the youngest version based on its higher theological development. That doesn't necessarily follow. It's possible that we have progress of thought. It is also possible that we have devolved to a lower state of thought. As we quoted from Paul above, knowledge of God may have been lost in this case. In a more recent example, consider Renaissance architects who glorified the great structures of Rome but didn't know how to build them. That knowledge was lost. 100 years into the building of the cathedral in Florence, the technical know-how to complete the dome without buttresses was still not available. They didn't know how to do that. 
even though that kind of dome existed in Rome. They could see it, they couldn't reproduce it. Not until Brunelleschi finally figured out the mathematics for the Roman Parthenon, regaining the knowledge that had been lost for a thousand years, and finished the cathedral. We might agree that the biblical flood story shows advanced theological knowledge, but that does not help us conclude whether it came before or after the more primitive stories. The biblical flood story could have existed a thousand years before the Gilgamesh epic and yet have been lost to the otherwise advanced Sumerian and Assyrian cultures. There's reason to believe the biblical story and the Gilgamesh epic are the older two out of these five. Gilgamesh and the Bible share 17 story elements, which include a divine decision to destroy mankind, a warning to a flood hero, a command to build an ark, uh, the hero's obedience, command to enter, the entry, closing the door, the description of the flood, a destruction of life, an end of rain, the ark grounding on a mountain, the hero opening a window, birds being sent out in reconnaissance, exit from the ark, sacrifice, divine smelling of sacrifice, and blessing on the flood hero. All of those elements exist in the same order in Gilgamesh and in the Bible in Genesis 6 through 9. The other three narratives contain only some of these elements. Interestingly, they all keep the same order, suggesting that there was an original telling of the story that these tales draw upon. Was it Gilgamesh or Moses or an older lost text? We simply do not know what kind of textual material Moses might have had to work with. There's no way to prove which story came first. We can say that nothing about the available data makes it unreasonable to believe that the biblical story is communicating an ancient retelling of an actual event. Let's move on to a second reason for the existence of parallels between the Bible and ancient Near Eastern sources. In some cases, God is intentionally using a known element in culture to communicate spiritual truth. In this series on the Pentateuch, I've referenced several times a parallel between the Second Millennium Suzerain Vassal Treaty form and the form of covenant we find in Scripture. That form includes the seven elements of one title, two historical prologue, three stipulations, both general and specific, four deposition and regular reading, five witnesses, six blessings, and seven curses. The elements are less distinctive in the covenants with Adam and Noah and more apparent with Abraham and Moses. And this makes sense considering that the covenants made with Abraham and Moses both occurred when the second millennium versions were being used in the ancient cultures. I'll not give examples of the treaty text here. You can look back at Lesson 4 on Abraham and Lesson 6 on Isaac and Jacob for examples from ancient Near Eastern kings. And you can go to Lesson 11 to see the parallel example in Exodus at Mount Sinai. When we get to Deuteronomy, I'll show how the seven elements of the Second Millennium Suzerain Vassal Treaty form are most clearly seen in that renewal of covenant with the second generation out of Egypt. It really shows up in Deuteronomy. The parallels are present. The question arises as how to explain those parallels. I believe that God intentionally uses known cultural elements to communicate truth to his people. God intentionally cut covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 using a form Abraham would recognize. God intentionally patterned his communication of covenant in Exodus and again in Deuteronomy, according to an already known form. Why would God do that? Why would God not be more original? 
Well, because God is a great communicator. When Jesus chose to explain spiritual truth through parables, he used what was known, flowers in a field, lost sheep, a farmer sowing seed, to communicate powerful truths that were not readily known. Jesus set up context through that which was commonly known in order to shake up his listeners with some twist or some surprise that revealed something they did not know. When God cut covenant with Abraham, it all made sense to Abraham. He could understand what God was doing, at least until the smoke and fire passed through the cut sacrifice of covenant. That part would have blown his mind. That made no sense. The great king, the suzerain, never walks through the covenant pieces. It seems as though God is communicating, if you break covenant with me, let me be cut in two. Let me die. But how can that be? How can my king, who is holy, die for me? What is this? It's great communication. That's what it is. God takes what is known to communicate his radical grace, to communicate what is not known. To take a second example, the tabernacle pattern does not stand out as a radically different temple pattern. Scholars have noticed a striking resemblance between the tabernacle of Israel and the war camp of Ramses II. In a relief taken from an Egyptian temple, the war camp is marked out in a rectangle, like the outer curtains of the tabernacle. Inside the war camp is a second rectangle, the tent of Ramses, which is divided into two chambers, bearing resemblance to the tabernacle's holy place and holy of holies. The inner chamber of Ramses' tent is depicted with images of the winged god Horus. Pharaoh understands himself to be the incarnation of Horus. He is a god, and he makes his dwelling in the innermost place. God himself also makes his presence to dwell in the tabernacle's innermost holy of holies. Again, we're left wondering, how do we assess these similarities? Did Moses just copy some ancient Near Eastern pattern? Why would God use a known pattern for his tabernacle instead of presenting Moses with a completely unique vision? And again, I would say that God does so because he's an excellent communicator, and he is also aware of the difficulty his people have in absorbing radically new information. They have to have some context. One thing at a time is going to be enough. The tabernacle pattern, though bearing similarity to other ancient Near Eastern temple forms, teaches a number of spiritual truths to the Israelites, but none more than the one most important truth, and it's a radical truth. The tabernacle was beautiful, all gold and blue and scarlet, filled with light and smelling of incense. It was a special place. But in some sense, it was a known kind of place. It looked like what an ancient Near Eastern person might expect of a mobile temple. Approaching the tabernacle, a person might be impressed, but not confused, at least not until they would enter in. At that moment, any ancient Near Eastern man or woman would be baffled. They would immediately notice the absence of the most important element of temple. What do you think they would have noticed? What was missing from all the furnishings that God gave Moses to create for his tabernacle? What was not there? There was no idol. And that means no God. The Hebrew word for temple is egal. That's an ancient Sumerian word adopted by the Hebrew language 
It simply means big house. The whole point of a temple is that it is a house for a god, and everyone knows that gods and goddesses dwell on earth as idols. The idol is the god, and the temple is his house. It makes no sense to have a house with no god. The Israelites themselves recognized this potential oversight. Even before Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the tabernacle pattern, they formed a golden calf so that God might dwell with them in his tent. They fixed what God was leaving out. A central truth God was communicating through the tabernacle was that he would dwell among the Israelites, but not as an idol. He is a completely different kind of God. God rejected that theology. At times, God communicates the unknown, the radically different, by using the known and giving it a twist. This is our second reason for parallels between the Bible and ancient Near Eastern culture. Another reason for parallels is that God is rebuking or correcting false elements of the ancient Near Eastern worldview. In places, the biblical text connects with ideas from other ancient texts. For example, the Enuma Elish Babylonian creation myth, which may reflect a story dating back to the old Babylonian empire of 1800 to 1500 BC, tells of the battle between the goddess Tiamat and the god Marduk. Tiamat becomes a sea dragon embodying the ancient Near Eastern link between the sea and chaos. Marduk wins the battle, killing Tiamat. He cuts her in two, making the sky out of one half of her body and the earth out of the other half. Marduk puts likenesses of gods in the heavens as the sun and stars, creates day and night, and places other likenesses of gods on the earth. Presumably these are idols. When you know Genesis chapter 1 and then read Enuma Elish, connection points between the two stories jump out. In the end, the differences between the two stories provide the key takeaway. Tiamat embodies chaos represented by the sea. God's spirit hovers over the waters of chaos, which are formless and void. God then brings order out of that chaos. Marduk creates something out of something, out of the body of Tiamat. God creates something out of nothing. The stars in the sky are images of the gods in the heavens for Marduk, but God calls light out of the darkness by his word, and fixes physical stars in the heavens. Marduk places gods on earth in the form of idols. God creates man on earth to reflect his image. I think it's saying too much to assert that Genesis 1 is an apologetic against false ancient Near Eastern beliefs about creation. God and his creation, particularly his creation of man, both male and female, are the center of the story. God is creating an environment for his vassal king and queen who will reign as his stewards on earth. God's creation of man and woman is at the forefront of the story. The refutation of false myth is in the background. The ancient Near Eastern context does not dominate God's communication, but it's part of God's communication. The truths presented in Genesis 1 communicate to the ancient Near Eastern culture, but also more broadly. These truths help establish an accurate worldview, speaking to every generation. God exists apart from the universe. That was important then, that's important now. All things have been created by his word. Important then, important now. All things were created good. 
important then, important now. Evil would come later through beings originally created good, important then, important now. And every human being has inherent dignity and worth being created in the image of God, important then, very important now. These truths challenge both the ancient Near Eastern worldview detected in the background of the story, while continuing to challenge modern pagan and modern secular worldviews. We should expect to come across parallels between ancient Near Eastern ideas and biblical ideas. Biblical events and teaching occur in historical time and place within culture. When we see potential parallels, we should stop and consider what the biblical text is communicating. Is this a rebuke or a correction of a contrary worldview? What is the Bible saying to culture? When we read about Leviathan in Isaiah 27.1, we should not immediately assume that Isaiah believes in a god or monster called Leviathan. We should assume that the great poet-prophet has chosen his words carefully and is intentionally making a reference to known mythology. It's not always clear how to interpret such references, though I think we should give God and the writers of Scripture considerable credit in their knowledge of the false belief systems of their day and in their ability to relevantly address those false beliefs with truth. Let's consider one last possible cause of parallels. Spiritual forces of evil have worked to pervert God's truth. Here's a test question for you after our study of Leviticus. Which festival required the following burnt offering? One bull, seven lambs, one goat, bread, and wine. What do you think it is? Passover, tabernacles. And no, of course, it's a trick question. The answer is a second millennium Hittite festival. Here's one more. Which festival required the following burnt offering? One bull, seven lambs, two rams, bread and wine. That one's the Feast of Weeks, described in Leviticus 23, 18 to 19. There's no significant difference between the two. How do we assess parallels between religious practices in the Bible and in the ancient Near East? Sacrifice of lambs and grain were received by God from the very beginning of fallen human experience, as recorded in the story of Cain and Abel. In that story, Cain's sacrifice is not acceptable to God because Cain's heart is not a right heart of worship. God warns Cain that sin is crouching at the door. Cain does not take responsibility for his own internal problem, but similarly to how his father Adam blamed Eve, Cain blames his brother Abel. Cain turns from God, murders Abel, and is cast out. When we reject worship and turn from God, what are we turning to? When humankind turns away from true sacrifice that has a true heart of worship, you know, what else is out there? In Deuteronomy 32, 16 to 19, we read this regarding Israel's participation in Moabite ritual at Peor. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who come lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the, because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. 
In the New Testament, Paul also recognizes demonic activity as a part of false religious practices. He writes in 1 Corinthians 10.20, No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. In Romans 1, 21 to 23, we read Paul's view on human responsibility for false worship. When human beings turn away from the glory of God and begin to worship created things, whether idols of men and animals or relationships, careers, money, the horoscope, Paul describes that turn from God as having a further effect on the person. Turning from God leaves to a further darkening of the mind and heart. Now, in 1 Corinthians 10.20, Paul is adding that turning from God to false worship is not only a human activity, but also involves the activity of fallen angels, demons. False religion is created both by fallen human beings and by spiritual forces of evil. Both bear responsibility. Satan works to destroy what God has made, to wreck his glory. Humanity is Satan's number one target. A major strategy to further devastation among men is the promotion of false religion of all kinds. Satan takes what is true and perverts it to feed the human drive for control, for identity, for pleasure, and for worship. We should not be surprised at parallels to biblical worship and ritual. We should not be surprised to see that which God reveals taken and deformed, perverting the truth of who God really is, and perverting the way of life that truly honors him. We should not be surprised if we believe in spiritual warfare and the reality of evil spiritual forces. So what do we make of Gudea of Lagash receiving a temple pattern in a dream from his God? Is that a purely psychological event? I don't think so. I think we recognize a perversion of the truth. The writer of Hebrews affirms in 8.2, that the true temple is a heavenly reality. That is God's true dwelling place. God handed down to Moses a pattern that symbolized deeper truth. The story of Gudea acknowledges that physical temple is meant to be a pattern of heavenly temple. The pattern must come from heaven. But in the case of Gudea, the story is a demonic perversion of this principle there is a handing down of a false pattern of worship and behavior. Dr. Nieshaus has pointed out an overarching pattern in the pantheons of ancient Near Eastern cultures. It is a pattern that mimics the real and the true. In the pattern, each system of gods and goddesses has a far-off supreme creator god. In Mesopotamia, the supreme god was An. In Canaan, El. In Greece, Kronos. In Rome, Saturn. This was not the god one typically dealt with. Usually, one of his sons, the storm god, took the throne and became the focus of the pantheon. In Mesopotamia, this was Enlil. In Canaan, Baal. In Greece, Zeus. In Rome, Jupiter. Surrounding this storm god as his court or as his rivals was a divine assembly of other gods and goddesses. Below this divine assembly are human beings. This pattern mimics spiritual reality. It's not completely false. It's based on a true pattern. There is a supreme creator, God the Father, though he does not remain far off and aloof. He has made himself 
accessible, and he has not been deposed by his son. The son is Jesus Christ. He is also connected with the storm. In his vision in 7.13, Daniel says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Jesus himself says of his return in Matthew 24.30, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. But Jesus is more than a storm god. Jesus is one with the Father. He is God. The divine assembly is not a host of gods and goddesses, but a host of angels, created beings. And instead of idols reflecting the image of God on earth, God the Father has created men and women to reflect his image. The biblical worldview is not an evolution of religion mutating out of pagan religion or primitive thought. The pagan worldview is a devolution of religion that comes about both by human beings turning away from God and by Satan working to spur on that separation and perversion. Parallels between biblical thought and ancient Near Eastern thought should not surprise us. If the Bible is what it claims to be, then we should expect parallels with surrounding cultures. There are some excellent scholarly resources that present factual evidence of parallels and contact points between the Bible and other cultures. Those can be very helpful. They're very interesting. At the same time, when reading these resources, Christians need to use their minds to remain alert and thoughtful when those scholars stop simply providing the data and start interpreting the data. When you encounter scholarly interpretation, you need to ask, what presuppositions is this scholar depending on to guide their own assessment of the data? We've discussed three presuppositions to keep in mind. First, is the scholar assuming an evolution of religion, or do they remain open to the idea of devolution, that in the history of human thought, there has at times been significant loss of knowledge? We do not assume perpetual progress. Second, is the scholar assuming that the oldest datable occurrence of a story is in fact the oldest version of the story, or do they remain open to the fact that we do not have access to all the information regarding when a story was first composed? For example, we cannot date Moses' writing of the Pentateuch before 1500 BC, but we also do not know what sources he may have been working from. Those sources could have been much older. They are lost to us, and we have to admit that. We just don't have all the data. Third, does the scholar dismiss immediately the supernatural and spiritual? We address this common presupposition in Lesson 8. A thinking Christian cannot dismiss the supernatural, since the biblical worldview asserts that God is and that God acts in history. An atheist is acting consistently on his worldview if he rejects the spiritual. We just need to be aware of the presupposition the scholar is working from. After considering the presuppositions of scholarly interpretations, we should try to read first-hand accounts of the parallels so that we not only get a feel for what is similar, but also recognize the differences. Because in truth, the similarities are often fairly superficial, and the differences are crucial. That's the key. For example, some scholars have made a lot out of the Baal cycle as a source for the Christian idea of resurrection. But the more you study the ancient Near Eastern account, the more you marvel that the Bible could ever come up with its view of the afterlife based on the cycle of Baal. 
Baal being taken down to the underworld every year and then brought back from the dead by his sister lover provides a mythical explanation of the seasons. The rains cease when the storm god is taken down to the underworld and resume when he's set free. But as far as any connection to biblical resurrection, the differences are so striking, there is no real similarity. It's a completely different worldview. They're different ideas. So in assessing parallels, first we need to check the presuppositions of any proposed interpretation. Second, we need to consider the data closely so that we see for ourselves the similarities and differences. And then third, we need to consider four possible reasons for the parallels. One, is there a common source event explaining similar stories? Two, is God intentionally using cultural practices and ideas to communicate his truth? Three, is God rebuking or correcting false cultural ideas? And four, could demonic perversion of true worship and practice be involved? May God bless you in your study of his word as you commit to loving him with all of your soul, with all of your heart, and also with all of your mind. To God be the glory. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of the Pentateuch, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.